Okay. So for those of you who have been here um, over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been uh, travelling through Romans chapters 9 through 11 um, as part of a much, much longer series on Romans that has been going on for donkey's years. And uh, we've been making, I think, relatively good progress. Now, uh, you'll know, or you'll remember if you've been here, that uh, Romans 9 to 11 is all about Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and it is addressing the question of their status now that Christ has come. What about Israel is the big question in Romans 9 to 11. Now, a lot of people um, have argued that, or not exactly argued, but just assumed that these chapters are not particularly relevant to us today and that we can uh, kind of skip from chapter 8 to chapter 12. I hope that I've been persuading you that actually chapters 9 to 11 are absolutely central to what Paul is doing in Romans. They're hugely important to him because his concern about Israel and about his Jewish compatriots comes through in the whole letter. Uh, We went back to the theme sentence in chapter 1, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, which is often where we sort of stop the sentence. But Paul carries it on for the Jew first and then for the Gentile, because that is really important to him. It matters. And he's going to go on in later chapters to deal with practical questions of how Jewish and Gentile Christians interact within the church. So this matters. But actually, behind all this stuff about Israel is something that is of more obvious and immediate importance to us. Because caught up with the question of, what about Israel now, is a question, what about God? God made numerous promises to these people. Has he failed to keep them? Has he given up? Has he somehow deserted them? And that matters for us immediately, because if the promises to Israel have been broken... How do we know that any of the promises to us will not be broken as well? And if what has happened in Jesus is not the fulfilment of those promises to Israel, how do we know that this is really the creator God, the God of Israel at work at all? So this matters. It matters to us. So uh, we've already seen, have the promises to Israel been broken? And we've already seen that the answer from chapter 9 was no. And we're beginning to see as we've gone through two sides to the story. Um, There's a kind of a divine side to the story. God has not broken his promises. In fact, he never promised that every Jew without exception would be saved. But all of the promises that he did make, he has kept. We saw that in chapter 9. And we saw also in chapter 9 that God is free with his mercy. He is not bound. He's not tied up and forced to be merciful here and not merciful there. But he is free. And he has shown that freedom in showing mercy to Israel. So there's that sort of divine story going on. God's intentions and plans. We've also started to see the human side of the story. Israel has resisted God. And as we saw last week particularly, Israel has stumbled over Christ. They did not want to accept God's righteousness because they wanted to establish a righteousness of their own. And they had misused God's law to try to do that. So, at the end of last week, we left Paul making it really clear, salvation is found only in Jesus. But in Jesus, it is available to everyone on the same footing 
whether Jew or Gentile, because, and we ended uh, last week where we began this week, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, in today's passage, we're kind of circling back to that question. So what went wrong for Israel? What went wrong? And uh, as per past weeks, I need to add the qualification that what I'm going to say this evening is not Paul's final word on the status of Israel. Um, That's next week. So come back for Paul's final word on the status of Israel next week. But this week, we're again going to hear some harsh stuff about Israel, stuff that doesn't play very well in our sort of in our, in our culture, which is so aware of the dangers of anti-Semitism, but it, we need to read it in its context, we need to understand what it's saying, and we need to understand that this is not everything that Paul has to say about Israel. I want to look at this um, passage under two headings, basically Paul's mission and Israel's response to Paul's mission. Paul's mission in 10, 14 to 17, and then uh, Israel's response in the rest. And we'll see that Paul sees his mission very much within the context of a changed situation. Because Jesus has come, it is even more the case, in a sense this was always true, but now it is especially true, we're in the day that the prophet Joel foresaw when everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So for Paul, history has completely changed with the coming of Jesus. And within the context of that change, he is going to see his own mission as an apostle worked out. But what does it mean? Okay, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus died and rose again, and history changed forever. But it doesn't help anybody if nobody knows about it. It's just an isolated historical fact, which... I don't know if it even counts as a historical fact if nobody knows about it, to be honest. Depends on your historiography. But it would just be there as a thing irrelevant. Well, here is Paul's mission. His mission, and, and, and it's the mission of uh, God's people for all of this time between Jesus' first and second coming, is outlined in getting the good news out Something has happened. Something objective has changed. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you and everybody else need to hear about it. So we get this sequence. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? If they don't believe, then they can't pray for salvation. How can they believe if they've never heard? I mean... This is just logical, right? It's hard to believe in someone who you've never heard of. Um, Yeah, like logically impossible, probably. But very difficult, anyway. So they need to hear before they can believe. They need to believe before they can call. And before that, Paul sees another stage. They can only hear if somebody actually comes to tell them, if there is a preacher. And then even behind that, there can only be a preacher if that preacher is sent. It's actually quite important for Paul because he's, he's very clear. If you read his letters, he's very clear about himself. 
he didn't just decide that it would be a good idea to go around and talk about Jesus a bit with people. He met with Jesus and his conversion experience was also the point at which he was sent out to go and tell others. So this is clear in Paul's mind. To, to know Jesus is to be sent out to make him known to others. That's the apostle's mission. That's what Paul is talking about here. His mission as an apostle. And if we're going to stand in continuity with the apostles, which I would suggest is a good idea, because otherwise, where are we standing, really? If we want to be a biblical church, if we want to be Christians who believe the gospel, this is our mission as well. To make Jesus known. I think we uh, shy away from this for a few reasons. Um, one is that just culturally, nobody wants to hear it, or very few people. Um, it's objectionable to people, or even where it's not objectionable, it's just something that they don't care about. Apathy is, is, the, is the rule. And I think one of the things that we tend to do, and I, I, I really believe that we're kidding ourselves a bit here, is that we tend to say, let's Let's shy away from this in-your-face telling people news about Jesus thing and go for um, being lovely to people. And, and that will win them over. Now, I'm not against being lovely to people. I mean, obviously, personally, I'm against it. But uh, in terms of the mission of the church, being lovely to people, I think, is a, is a pretty fantastic idea. But it is not something that will cause anybody to call on the name of the Lord by itself. Um, if I'm really lovely to somebody and, you know, that's unlikely but suppose I were to be really lovely to somebody what that might do is encourage them to call on me when they needed something else when they needed some help because they might think, he's a lovely guy, he'll, he'll come and help me out but in and of itself it's not going to encourage them to call on the name of the Lord because they've still not heard about him so they still can't believe in him and therefore they still can't call on him so words news, communication of good news really matters here. That is what, for Paul, his existence as an apostle is all about. And it's what our existence as a church is all about. Now yes, in the context of living a life that backs up our message and that shows people that this is good news, but still speaking and getting the message out. Another reason I think we, we shy away from this is because we basically don't believe that it is good news. Um, Paul's quotation from Isaiah about uh, the beautiful feet of those who bring good news. The, the allusion is, is um, to somebody running from a battlefield to say, the battle is won, we are safe. He's running back to the city to tell the people in the city, we have won, it's all going to be okay. That's great. Like, you see that guy coming over the hills with that message, you want to hear it. And I think we've lost confidence that our message is good news like that. I think we've forgotten how amazing it is that we can go to people and say, it is going to be alright. Our God has won. Evil is defeated. Death is done away with. If only we could get a hold of that, that this is great news. 
That would transform us, transform our mission. Can I suggest that we should pray for that? I really don't believe that we can just work up that kind of excitement in ourselves, or at least if we did, it would just end up being like froth on the top of the coffee that you know is really disappointing because you were after coffee and instead you got froth. And it disappears pretty quickly. If we want solid confidence to take the message of Jesus out, let's pray that God will give it to us and that he will send us. How can we go out there to people who don't want to hear and tell them about Jesus if we are not sent? We need to pray that he would send us. Anyway, it's Paul's mission. But here is Israel's response. He trails it in verse 16. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Quote from Isaiah 52. Who has believed our message? I mean, not all the Israelites is kind of understatement based on what we've already seen in chapters 9 and 10. The majority of Israelites have not accepted the good news. And so Paul goes on to kind of anticipate a couple of potential excuses that people might bring forward. Why haven't they accepted the good news? Well, might it be, he thinks, because they didn't actually hear it. Now, that would be a valid excuse, right? He's just told us that you can't call on the name of the Lord if you haven't heard of him. So might it be that Israel didn't hear? Well, Paul says, not a chance. Not a chance. They've certainly heard. And actually he quotes um, Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Now that's an interesting quote. That's an interesting quote because Psalm 19 is about the sun and the moon and the voice of creation that proclaims the glory of God. But Paul is picking it up here and saying, and the apostolic preaching has been pretty much as widespread as that. Now I think he's using hyperbole here. Obviously, in actual fact, more people had seen the sun in the first century than had heard Paul preach. But he's saying, in all the world, the apostolic preaching has gone out almost as if it was as widespread as the very preaching of creation. I think he's doing something um, clever and offensive here, by the way. Um, by picking up on Psalm 19, he's making us think about that natural revelation that is out there in the world. You know, when we go out there and we look at the sun and we think, God is great. And by picking up on that, he's putting these Jews who are resisting the gospel into the same camp as the Gentiles in chapter 1, who saw God's greatness from creation and resisted it, buried the truth, didn't want to have anything to do with it. So if I'm a first century Jew, this is offensive to me. But I think that is the point that Paul is making. They have heard, and they didn't want to hear. And yes, that is offensive to the first century Jew, but remember... It just puts him in the same boat as the first century Gentile who can see God's greatness from creation and doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, okay, so they did hear, Paul. They did hear. We'll grant you that. Uh, is it perhaps that they didn't understand? Because, let's be honest, it would be hard to judge somebody for not responding to a message which they didn't understand. If I um, was standing here speaking in a foreign language which you didn't know, 
it would be pretty rough if I came up to you afterwards and said, so what are you going to do about what I said? You know, what's your response? Your response is going to be, I don't have a foggy clue what you're talking about, mate. And uh, to be honest, I don't know why I sat there for half an hour listening to you spouting gobbledygook. And that would be fair. I wouldn't be able to judge you for that. Did Israel not understand? Well, Paul has two witnesses to the contrary. He goes for Moses and he goes for Isaiah. He probably does that because he wants the law and the prophets. So he wants to say, look back to your Old Testament. Did Israel not understand? And his first quotation is from Moses. This is Deuteronomy 32, which is the Song of Moses. It's a kind of um, Israel's national anthem, except that it would be a really depressing national anthem, because um, the gist of it is, for a while you'll follow God, and you'll be blessed, and that'll be great, but then after a little while you'll become proud, you'll cease to follow God, he'll judge you, you'll ignore him, and then you'll be taken away into exile. So, like, as far as national anthems go, that would be pretty awful. Um, I was going to make some derogatory comments about national anthems, but I won't. Uh, I was going to pick on the Scots. Um, who's, let's face it, their national anthem is just, we're not very good anymore. But, um, yeah, I might have to run. Uh, the point is, Paul is picking up on a bit of the Old Testament which actually predicts that Israel will be unfaithful to God. And in so doing, he's calling up that whole recollection of the Old Testament narrative. At what point, he is saying, was Israel not unfaithful to God? Was there ever a point where not understanding could be used as an excuse? And the text itself makes it clear that Moses does envisage a nation that doesn't understand, but it isn't Israel. It's the Gentiles. So Moses, way back in Deuteronomy, says there will be a nation that doesn't understand, the Gentiles, and they are going to be the instrument of God's judgment on Israel, which does understand but doesn't believe. Following? Does that make sense? So he picks on Moses to say they do understand. They can't claim that they don't understand. And then he goes to Isaiah 65. Um, now, this is an interesting one. He quotes uh, two, two things from Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 1, and then chapter 65, verse 2. Now, uh, the first quote goes like this. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Now, if you go home and look up Isaiah 65, verse 1, you'll find that it doesn't quite say that. Um, the Hebrew text actually says, I was ready to be found by a people who did not seek me. I was ready to reveal myself to those who didn't ask for me. And in, in that original text, it pretty certainly applies to Israel. But Paul's Greek translation allows him to sort of pick it up and use it as if it applied to the Gentiles and to say, the Gentiles have found God even though they didn't seek him. He has revealed himself to them even though they didn't look for him. But then about Israel... He says, Isaiah 65, verse 2, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's a powerful image, actually. It's not an image that sits well, in some ways, with the greatness of God that we've been seeing in these chapters. We saw that God is like the potter who has complete rights over his creation. 
We saw that God is absolutely sovereign, free to make any decision he chooses. But we need to make sure that we don't turn God into some sort of puppet master. He's really involved in the lives of his creatures. And here he is, holding out his hands to rebellious creatures. It's like, you know, when I'm holding out my hands to my son. But, to be honest, he wants to go the other direction. And God is described here as doing it all day long. All day long, God said to Israel, come back to me. Come back to me. And all day long, they said, no. No, I don't want anything to do with you. See, it's not a lack of understanding. When I'm holding out my hands to my son, it's usually because I need, to do, need him to do something or be somewhere. Quite often it's, um, say, for example, excuse the crudity, he soiled himself. I want, I want to sort that out. He'll be more comfortable if I sort it out. The place will smell less. Everybody will be happier. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Come on, Rufus, you need to go to the bathroom. No. And he'll resist for as long as he possibly can. I only wanted to bless you. And I stood here all day seeking to bless you, inviting you in. And you ran and hid in the corner. Is it because, is Rufus resisting me because he doesn't understand what I'm going to do? I don't think so. We can debate that, maybe. But I don't think so. He gets it. But it is more important to him to have his own way than to have a comfortable backside. And that's what's going on here, without the backside stuff. It is more important to Israel to get their own way than to be blessed by God. And let's remember how much effort Paul has gone gone to in uh, the earlier chapters of Romans to say, And we're all the same. This is what Israel is like. This is what we are like. Well, is that it then? Israel has rejected God. They heard. They understood. They didn't want anything to do with it. Is that it? I ask then, at chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? just not an unreasonable question did he reject his people they rejected him but Paul's answer is no in fact it's more than no by no means not a chance God didn't reject his people the people he foreknew the people he had this long history with he didn't reject them and Paul says I know he didn't reject them because I'm one of them And I am a believer in Jesus. And it's not just me, says Paul. There is a remnant. Now he's picking up on images from the prophets there. The prophets regularly talk about a remnant. A small portion of Israel that will be saved. A small portion that remains faithful. And Paul picks up on the example of the days of Elijah. When uh, Elijah is basically... I mean, Elijah is kind of a... I don't know. He's a a hero and a bit of a whinger. 
There's a, 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 he's just had this massive triumph at Mount Carmel. He's put to death the prophets of Baal, and uh, then the queen threatens him with death, and he runs off into the desert, and uh, he seeks God. And when he finally finds God, he doesn't say, Lord, thanks for the, uh, the fire from heaven and you know, all, the, all the stuff there. That was awesome. He says, I'm the only one left. Anyway, maybe he's justified in that. But God's answer to Elijah is, no, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 people in Israel I've kept for myself. 7,000 people who haven't bowed to Baal. 7,000 in a nation is a very small number. But it is proof for Elijah that God is not finished with Israel. His purposes for Israel carry on. And the small remnant who believe in Jesus, the small remnant of Israel who trust Christ, that is proof enough for Paul that God is still dealing with Israel. His plans for Israel are still going forward. But get this. It is a remnant chosen by grace. And as if to underline it, Paul says, and if it's by grace, it's not by works. Because if it were, then grace wouldn't be grace. In other words, this is not something that God owed to Israel. He is being gracious. He is showing mercy. He is freely loving, freely choosing to continue Israel's story with God. And we're going to see where that story goes next week. But it is an ongoing story. It is still happening now. Well, so what? Okay, the first point about Paul's mission, that applies to us pretty clearly. We can see that. What's all this got to do with us? Well, next week we're going to see that Paul really, really wants us to be careful about how we think about Israel. And that matters. But what I just want to get across right now Apart from the fact that it is a privilege when we have Jewish Christians around us. I only know of one Jewish Christian in Magdalen Road. There may be more. But it is a deep, deep privilege to have them here. In one sense, the Gospel will always belong to them more than it does to us Gentiles. And we have to just get over that and accept it. It's freely given to us, but it belongs to them. But we're going to talk about that a bit more next week. What we need to do here is marvel at God's grace. And I believe, I'm pretty confident, that Paul is saying, God has set this up this way for a reason. Look, we can marvel at God's grace two ways. If you're a Gentile Christian like me, you can say, out of nowhere, God showed his grace to me. When I had no prior history with him, no covenant, no commitment, he was gracious to me in the Lord Jesus, and that is amazing. Whenever we see Gentile Christians gathered together, that is what we should think. Look what God has done. Out of nothing, he has created a people to praise him and to be saved and to worship him forever. Astonishing. Whenever we see Jewish Christians, we should think, look at how God's grace perseveres. Look at how it doesn't give up. Look at how the covenants and the promises that he made are still ongoing. How faithful he is. How gracious and how gracious in his faithfulness. The church, says Paul elsewhere, displays God's glory, his manifold glory. And I think that's partly what we see here. 
whether it is God's grace to Gentiles who have no history with him at all, or God's grace to Jews who have a history of rejecting him, we can say, look how good he is. Look how amazingly good he is. And that should lead us to praise.